can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it right. Welcome, everybody, to another amazing episode of Break Some Dishes. I'm John Strausner, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Miss Verda Alexander. And we have an amazing guest today that we're super excited about, uh, who Verda will introduce shortly. But for anybody who's not familiar with Break Some Dishes, we are two activists in the interior design industry who look to uh, uncover new voices and new personalities who are breaking status quo and breaking dishes and doing things differently and making us all question why we haven't done it sooner. And we've got somebody with us today who I'm going to let Verda introduce. So welcome, everyone. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Russell is with Stickbulb and parent company Rux. Russell started as a designer, designing all sorts of products. And he was quite good at it, but then all of a sudden made a U-turn because he found that what he was designing wasn't fulfilling. He and his team are now leading multiple efforts to create companies with responsible supply chains that are open source that we can all learn from. Not only that, they are uniting beauty and purpose. We've all cringed in the past at having to specify environmentally friendly, worried that those choices would be limited at best and have non-existent design aesthetic at worst. (laughs) Things have been getting better, though. And Stickbulb is actually leading these efforts with absolutely breathtaking light fixtures and other products that address design minimalism and restraint, product life cycle, timeless and lasting design. He believes that beauty equals therapy. Let's have a little design therapy today while we break some dishes with Russell. Hey, Russell, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us. Yeah. yeah and tell us about... Your um, so it so as I understand it, you've got an umbrella company, and that ha- you've got a couple of sub companies under that. So explain how that works. So tell us about Rocks and then the sub companies under that. Well, wait, Verda, I don't even oh. think you gave everybody Russell's last name. Oh my so, gosh! You know, I always assume I mean, everybody can read I'm my like Madonna. Mind. I just go by Russell. <laughs> it's fine. Well, that's, that's how Verda rolls. Come on, Al. I mean, come yeah. on, come on, John. Finish. Russell this. Greenberg. Russell Greenberg is with us today from Rucks and from Rucks and Stickball. Yeah. So, in answer to your question, Verda, um, Rucks Studios is the team behind the brands we build. And we're a multidisciplinary team. And the goal is to have all our eggs in one basket, which maybe people have said in the past is a bad idea, but I believe is a great idea. It's connecting all the parts of design from research, marketing, sales, design, manufacturing, customer support, all under one roof. And we go out on different creative missions. So the idea for for Rux is that we're one team and we're one place, but we sort of broadcast creativity on different wavelengths. Stickbulb is one of our wavelengths. It's a separate LLC co-founded by myself and my partner, Christopher Beardsley. And as you said, we make lights out of reclaimed and sustainably sourced wood that we find locally, um, demolished buildings, dismantled water towers, fallen trees, and then um, sustainably managed local forests. And the mission there, while we are making light fixtures, those light fixtures are really artifacts of a deeper purpose and process for us, which is trying to find a way to be 
global, but also local at the same time and repair what is a, a broken supply chain, really, in the timber industry. Um, there's so much elegance and, and material and um, energy savings to be had by just operating logically with common sense about how you build things. And there's so much embedded value in the materials that are lying on the ground right next to you. And so the thought with stick bulb is, is that if everybody applied that mentality to whatever it was that they were building, whether it was wood or it was something else, um, we would have a healthier planet. And then another company that we recently started, which I, I understand isn't necessarily the topic of, of this discussion today, but just helps put what we're doing at Rux Studios in greater context, is a company called Gradual, which was um, I co-founded with Christopher Beardsley again and um, our product design director at Sickbowl Mitchell Home. And the mission of Gradual is to recognize that the story of time we tell ourselves and the clocks we use to tell it are a vestige of the Industrial Revolution. And they're really good at breaking time into usable, precise segments. But they're really bad at conveying the poetry and the perspective of time and giving the bigger picture of time. And so we're on a mission to try and find ways to visualize time and tell a story of time that's better for us. And that positions us for what is the next revolution, not an industrial or technological revolution, but a wellness revolution, um, which is about finding more time for ourselves and understanding that we sit in a larger continuum of centuries and millennia that we are uh, responsible for as much as we are for our own lives and the immediate time that we exist in around us. Yeah. So I is it a, um, is it a throwback to old school um, clocks or getting away from using our iPads and our, no, quite or am I being too literal? I'm no Luddite. So I think technology is awesome, but I think that it's, it's it, like anything else, not appreciated in moderation. It'll be bad for you. And I think that all this stuff's really new for us, and we just don't know how to portion it out. You know, our first collection for Gradual is an app-enabled clock. So we're embracing technology. But it's so different from an ordinary tech object in that its purpose is to get you to think about centuries as often as you think about seconds. And so it is a... It is a it is a perception altering device, and it's beautiful. I, I saw it. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's several versions, right? There's one that counts centuries, yeah. millennia, and there's one that counts days and years, and so on. And I I saw that. And I go, wow, this is this is this is not a furniture object. It's an art object. Are you yeah. some? Are you getting some interest from galleries and museums for these pieces? We have. We're figuring out what we're doing as we go. This is a design-build exercise on every level. And at a business model level, at the Ruck Studios level, I'm not, I don't like the idea of taking on investment of any kind in the things we do. I like the idea that we are homegrown because what it does is it gives us the, the ability to be patient and without guilt, regret, or accountability. It's, you know, we can, we can do things on our own time and, and we've part of what we're doing with gradual. And I think it is, maybe it's on theme for the company is we're taking it really slow. Like right now, the only place you can get these things is in our studio. And for us, one of the biggest value adds of this project are the conversations we have with people. 
in the process of interacting with these things. In a way, we're learning so much about ourselves and our customers and the things we're making from those conversations. And for right now, I think we're interested in just um, sort of hoarding those experiences uh, selfishly. Um, You're curating them. Yeah, and it's really it's it's been really fun. And just in terms of, you know, I don't think we think a lot anymore about how clocks and time fit into architecture and space. You know, but clocks do have the ability to set or reset the rhythm of a room. And there's value in that. Um, there's a lot of value in that. Especially when we try we spend so much time trying to escape from the clutches of our overscheduled world, meditation, yoga, travel. There's no reason why you can't find that respite or that release in a clock. It's counterintuitive because we conceive of clocks as part of the problem, but that's only because the version of time they're telling us at this point is sort of reminding us of how busy and intoxicated with overstimulation and information we are. Yeah, well, clocks... clocks keep us on time, they keep us on schedule, and they inevitably hurry us up. But what they don't do, and and I think what, what gradual does is it records time so that you, 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 you get the sense of the passing of time. Whereas a clock, the, the, the dial clicks and it's the next hour and it just resets and you don't yeah, remember yeah. it. So the idea of, a, the, idea of the, the lightweights, which is our first collection, is that you're seeing simultaneously seconds through two centuries at the same time. And you're appreciating the cumulative effects of those things as cascading flows of light from one vessel into another. And it's hard in a podcast, I think, to get across what this thing looks like. But the problem of visualizing time is, is a pretty impossible thing in Self. You know, I think we've got we've become normalized to ways that we've done it in the past, but there are infinite ways to conceive of it. And I think it's actually, you know, getting back to like stickbulb and the bigger picture of grad of, of rucks and gradual, part of me just as a creative person and back to the idea of of design as a form of therapy and on a personal level, you know, after doing stickbulb day in and day out for eight years, while that was very fulfilling. It, it's it's somewhat narrowing. You get the sense that the, the, your creative life in front of you is a narrowing funnel rather than one that's opening up. And that the specialization that's required to do something like that so well means that the problems you're iterating on and continually solving are honing in on finer and finer details you're trying to perfect. Um, and that's fascinating. But, it, but creatively, artistically, as someone who has a lot of interests and a lot of curiosity in life, I felt like I needed to balance that very rigorous journey that we're on with stickbulb. And, and part of the power of the journey of stickbulb is how rigorous it is. Well, if you're not careful, you know, if you're not, if you're not careful, you, you become a lighting company. Well, yes. Or, or you're not solving interesting problems. I mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, making pretty lights is really fun and it's really important. I'm yeah. not trivializing it, but we're not stylistically driven. We're ideologically driven. And that is all makes all the difference. I mean, the type of people that we want ultimately to meet and the type of people we, we feel deeply connected to are the people that resonate with what we're doing on all levels. So it's the, it's the superficial level. Wow, this is beautiful. So it's explain that, level. though. So, it's, you know, it's what you guys are after, 
right? It's like, hey, you know, we're designers. We're in the business of making beautiful spaces or beautiful things and creating a, a beautiful backdrop for life. But at the same time, you know, how deep does that beauty go? Yeah, I would love to, for you to even back up a little bit more because I, I had my kind of my epiphany a few years back designing all these beautiful spaces for a lot of tech firms like Uber and Facebook and Yelp and companies like that and realizing that I was really just designing beautiful spaces for the 1% of cor- corporate America. And and at that time in San Francisco, there was some some – we, some uh, some people were lashing out at the Google buses that were taking over the mission and the gentrification that was happening and the way that these corporations were creating these office buildings and turning their backs to the community. And I realized that at, that was kind of my moment where I thought I need to to do more and, and create a value add. What was your aha moment? It's when I started taking full responsibility for the things I was designing as an, as a, as a maker and investor in those things that I realized how vast and intricate design is and that the decisions that you make ripple through t- like space and other people's lives, like the vendors, you mm. use, the material, yeah. the people. Do they teach you that in design school? I don't think they do. That's I think it's teaching right? it. It's, it's like kind of like everything else. It's like, you know, reading about playing a musical instrument, but then playing a musical instrument. It's like one's visceral and one's like cerebral. The act of going through the process, meeting the people, you know, realizing that we could be getting lumber that for some inexplicable reason has been like shipped back and forth across the sea a few times because it was like a rounding error and someone's whatever. And then we make a stick bulb out of it, or we could shake hands with a local forester who actually has a plan to build more biomass than take out of the ground and purchase and support from them is a profoundly different idea of what beauty is because the same product can nurture two different versions of reality, infinite versions of reality. But I'd I'd rather think of the things we're doing as seeding good intention, positive patterns, reinforcing good decision-making, not just at the interface of the customer, but as deep into the supply chain and in all of the ways that we can along the way. And then harder to understand and, and manage we're finding, but you know, the, how to get these things back after their people are done with them and find new use for them and upcycle. Yeah. End of life. So it's really yeah. Tough. You oh. should, uh, you know, you should be renting, uh, renting these out, right. Then at the, yeah. at the end of the rent, yeah. at the end of the lease, they return them back to you and then you repurpose yeah. them. Yeah. Hey, I, it, I, it's definitely crossed it. your mind. Um, I, I love this. I love your products. So let me rent a few of those yeah. uh, beautiful people. Give me a call after this. <laughs> so, so this idea of a different idea of beauty, we're struggling with that right now. And I'm actually helping to coordinate some, an awards, uh, event that we have here locally. And, you know, as interior designers, we're always thinking about that photographable moment that might get our projects into magazines and this and that. And, and we, we've been, t- we, I've been talking a lot with my team about how do you photograph what, what really matters and make yeah. it compelling. It's, I know it's in a way it's a, a visualization problem in the same way that like, and I, this is the first time I've actually thought of it this way, but you know, the, the, 
the challenge with gradual was how do you visualize something that's so slow that it doesn't look like it's moving like a hundred years, like something that's going to change over a hundred years. It's going to be so gradual that like people aren't going to be interested in looking. It's not going to capture anyone's imagination. Fundamentally, that's the problem with long time frames. They don't perform on short time frames. And our, we're so temporally nearsighted and so starved for immediate satisfaction that we want something that happens in a second rather than something that happens in a hundred years. Similarly, you know, we, I think that things tend to get pushed to surface treatment and simplicity because they're easier to digest more quickly. This is complex mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And so it requires a level of engagement and patience to even appreciate what the hell it is, let alone get good at it. Well, and I think also we look at, you know, when you, when Verta, when you redesign a space, right, it's very easy to look at the old space and compare it visually to the new space and say, wow, Verta did an amazing job. And, and that's the quickest way to, to tell your story. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what's interesting to me is, Russell, you're, you're pr- the priority that you're giving the supply chain. Because to me, that's, that's more important yeah. than it's, the aesthetics. It, it's, it's sort of the aesthetics of ethics, right? It's like, what, yeah. how do you, what the hell does that look like? And how do you get that to be sexy? Mm. How do you create desire lines around that? How do you get that in a magazine spread? You know, right? And look, this is a this is you. You guys are doing this podcast. I'm doing my thing. We're connecting. This is a movement. This is big, and there are a lot of people doing it. You know, we're applying for um, the um, the B certification. B Corp. So are we? <laughs> uh, yeah. So fascinating. <laughs> well, it's freaking fascinating. What a what a and and it should be complicated as hell. I mean, this is what we need to be doing. And I think that they're a phenomenal example of a company that's wrangling complexity, preserving complexity. Like some, I think simplicity is sometimes like a compression algorithm for simplicity, a complexity, but so much information gets lost in the process of compressing it that you can't unpack the complexity from it on the other side. It's just lost. But there's this, what they're doing is many times more complicated than that interview process and questions and survey um, lets on. But even in its simplified form, even in its, even its compressed form, it's still incredibly complicated. It's, it's plugging back into the sustainability development goals of the UN. And it's, 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 it's such an uh, a, um, amazing tool for people that are, are willing to take on the complexity of this. I think that, um, I, I, you know, I think that what you're doing, the, the, you know, if all you pay attention to are the superficial aesthetics, the, the magazine spread does its job. But this is why we have all these certifications out there Yeah. to, uh, to really authenticate what you're doing so that people that don't know you, don't know who you are, yeah. can look at this and say, all right, he's legitimate. He's actually, yeah, it's he's, he's really talking the talk. to have a scaffolding off of which to work. I mean, yeah. Yeah. This, without without some path to follow, you know, we can't all start from zero on this. I, you know, like I said, we're figuring things out as we go. We've got enough problems as it is just as a lighting company trying to make a profit in the world, especially during, you know, the times we're living in right now. So to, to layer on top of that, all these additional non-obligatory, but sort of things that we find to be morally required to just exist um, it's really helpful to have to have people that you know help you through that and help usher you through that, and give structure to that process. So I and hope I, that 
more people do what you guys are doing and what we're doing, which is voluntarily be, be, be vulnerable and learn what you're not doing well and need to do better at through these processes think, of, of interviewing. Yourself. Yeah, and I think little by little, and, and I think the more you and I and, uh, and others start to embrace this, this aesthetics of ethics will start to will start to build up in us. It's it's we're so much a culture of instant gratification right now, and um, we just want instant beauty and all of that. And I've, I've designed so many offices that I knew were only going to last three years or four years. And, and it, this idea of slowing down and under, and, and embracing a new aesthetics, it's going to take yeah. time. It's going to take time. It's take time. Well, and here's the other thing. I'm not interested in feeling like I'm compromising. Oh God, I got to slow down. Things are too fast. I want to make this sexy and desirable. I mean, I think that there's like, that's ultimately, you know, create desire lines around this. You know, it's so gradual is really trying to make that that slower, bigger perspective view of time and responsibility and mortality and you know something that is you want to be next to rather than Yeah, I like that it it flies in the face of in the face of something as environmentally bad as fast fashion. So it, you know, there's a correlation there. The time our perception of time is is basically an operating system on which we make all of our decisions consciously or unconsciously. And most of them feed the these, these sort of um, quick fix solutions um, rather than things that are where, where we're foregoing something we'd like to have because we know that it's better for the people that come after us. And if we can't get in that, mentality then we're really effed yeah um so it's sort of it's pretty on point it's pretty it's a hot topic (laughs) especially today (laughs) it's a a life and death topic it is a life i know it's our life talk about that right like shouldn't we be talking about like wooden lights so it very quickly gets (laughs) it's overwhelming you know yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, to go back to your wooden lights. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I'm going to use the aesthetics of ethics and I will credit you uh, deservedly. So uh, I love that, that term, just like I love when we were talking with um, Jane Abernethy about. Jane is great. Understanding, oh, it's, yeah, she is. Well, I mean, you know, she understands supply chain. Yeah. and figuring it out. But we were talking with her, with her and we were calling it forensic design, mm. right? And I think there's not enough of that going on today either, right? Yeah. But I, I just want to go back to stick bulb for a minute because it's it's beautiful product. Um, what what you're looking at reclaimed wood from New York water towers, which I think is a story in and of itself. Like I go to New York City, I see these water towers on the tops of these buildings. And I'm like, what? I thought they had, you know, plumbing in New York City. Why do we need these water towers? I've, I've Honestly, I've never quite understood the real story of a water tower. But what made you take that wood that you were reclaiming and decide to make lights with it and not tables or chairs or wall facades? <laughs> Part of it is just, for me, it's really just sort of common sense. There's a level of resourcefulness in it. It's like, there's wood right there. Like, why am I not using it? That's the, that's at the dumbest, least poetic level. It's just, it's sort of obvious on the other, this second on top of that is there, it's a relic. It's 
it's loaded with meaning and and context and yeah it's it, this story is deep and it's a relic i mean relics are are valued because they store memory and so you know typically when you're working with reclaimed materials i say typically maybe that's not true but i'm just going to use this version of the story as counterpoint to the way we're doing it typically you try and preserve the texture of old on this wood so like very often the outer surface of a reclaimed beam or joist or something is the most valuable it will actually be you know cut off and used as a surface treatment on a wall or something to give to scream reclaimed because why would you want to take away that memory if you can visually hearken to it so literally in the texture of the wood that's not what we're doing we're taking the we're taking the inner part the part where the visual reclaimedness of the wood has been stripped away because for us this is not about the surface of the story it's about the fact that we're we're doing this because it's a more sustainable material to be to be working with you know if you can make it locally out of wood from responsible sources then you should and that doesn't just go for lights it goes for pretty much anything it's the difference between something being grown and sequestering carbon in the process of doing that versus something being mined and giving off a tremendous amount of carbon in the process of doing it. And so it is, it's just logical to use that material. It, it's, it was not, and still maybe to a certain extent, is not logical necessarily in the lighting industry to be using that material because there's a lot of economy to be making lights in the way that other companies make lights with bent metal and aluminum yeah. extrusions and all that. But when you, look yeah. at, when you look at the big picture, the big environmental picture, it's the logical way to make lights. And it's a logical way to make a lot of things. So, so the fact that this stuff is reclaimed for us is part of that logic. It's part of the poetry. And it's part of the common sense of just using um, sort of found materials, local found materials. Now, I was just reading something where somebody built a, a structure using only lo- locally sourced materials and calculated the carbon impact of that. And it was t- 200% less than if they built it with traditional materials shipped from all over concrete and so on and so forth. So there's quite a savings there, but help me understand. So if you're using locally sourced, but then you're shipping it, I know we've used your, we've specified your lights quite a few times. Is that kind of. I know. Yes. So what we're, the way we manage that is twofold. First of all, we try and reduce as much shipping on the, the back end, the supply side, as we possibly can, and we're not perfect, but we're we're constantly conscious of and making decisions as best we can to reduce that. And then the flat packability of our products and the modularity of our products is our way of addressing the realities of shipping. To but tell us about that. Tell us about how it, how you so, yeah. to do that. Yeah. So I, I just think modularity is so sexy. Aside from all the sides, it's just the coolest thing. Um, you know, it's just so freaking cool. And when I was, um, studying architecture, I was just like, I don't know. I just couldn't get enough of that. And, and, you know, I felt like I was personal friends with Buckminster Fuller, even though I obviously never met him. It was just like, I don't know. It was a very, it's a very magical, um, universe. It's almost like this utopian kind of world of reconfigurability and, and, um, you know, uh, so anyway, 
stickle is scratching that itch, you know, rather than the parts having value just because they're modular and reconfigurable, which in and of itself is sexy, having them also connected back to that storyline of this came from, you know, this factory in Chicago that was demolished. And this was the family that, you know, started in, you know, it's, it's tied back into history. So it's got all these, these layers of meaning. And the flat pack ability that comes with modularity is, is, has a shipping footprint upside because you're not shipping air. And when you have to ship air, then don't ship air. So we're doing the best we can. We're about to engage in a redesign of our packaging, which we've been wanting to do for a while to get it even tighter and smaller and also use sort of better sourcing for our, for our parts for the packaging itself. Mm-hmm. You know, we, or you'll have to well, an office in, uh, in, in, on the West Coast, a factory on the West Coast and these locally sourced I mean, products. Should, the, the yeah, Coast. look, the, the dream, right? If, if, if there was a dream, forget stickball, the dream would be everyone would be making everything locally out of local stuff. Right. Totally distributed. And you talk about open source. Totally decentralized right? and totally distributed. Um, so they would have, um, they would have a blueprint. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the, I think that's the utopian version of, I speak right. utopias. It's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of, not everything, because maybe that's not practical, but there's a, there's a good chunk of stuff that you don't need to be shipping halfway across the world to get it. You could be supporting <laughs> local economies, local people, local, you know, local foresters. You could actually probably find a way to make the local re- recycling and processing of plastics commercially viable and it there's just a lot of and there are companies that are trying to do that like i don't know if you've heard of precious plastic which is such a fascinating organization started by a really cool guy i can't remember his name in europe and it's become a global phenomenon it's just you know it's 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 ordinary people collecting plastic building their own machines for grinding they sort building their own extruders to make their own stuff and it's it the only thing that's limits you is your patience your interest in like the this learning curve of dealing with these materials and your creativity um yeah and it's this whole world of people that are trying to decentralize what has become this massive industry of you know plastic extrusion and what an amazing business model wow i think there's i think there's an authenticity to what you're doing russell and i think that the struggle is how do you show that yeah. How do you show without being superficial? Yeah. And look, it, it, here, sometimes I kick myself because I like, I'm not on social media. Like I really don't understand a lot of this stuff and I don't even, I'm not doing this to be seen. Right. Yeah. I know that's very like anti. Well, it's not very narcissistic. Right now. It's, <laughs> well, it's, it's just, and it's part of our problem too. Like if you go to the stick bulb site, it, it, you, you'll have to scratch and dig to find this information. It's not there. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We there. talked about that. I was like, that it's not there. Is, what's yeah. going on, right? What's <laughs> happening? Russell, what's wrong with you? Right? Yeah. Yeah. The reason the reason why is we have to fix that. So part of it is everything's a process and we're in the process. The other answer to it is is that I'm only able to now, and my team is only able to now throw our full weight behind this mission because we've done the hard work to build a business that can support that mission. There's a lot of what we're doing now is not efficient. 
as it would be to not do it. And so we, we had to get to a place where we could afford to, to solve these problems, both in terms of time and money. And yeah. so we're, we're there now, and we have been there for about a year or so now, where we could really start being more outspoken and aggressive about the seeds we planted intuitively into the stickball logic. What we've done in those last few years is we've added to that intuition more good science and quantitative research. We've partnered with an organization called Shine that works out of MIT and the materials lab over there. And it's in, and is actually, I can't remember, is that how I met Jane? I think that's how I met Jane. I remember nothing, actually. Um, oh. And it's a, it's a, you know, Greg Norris, who runs it, is a really fascinating guy. And he's helped me. Oh, well, yeah. Greg Norris is the, the scientist for International Living Futures Institute. Yeah, correct. So he's amazing. He's very cool. Guy. And without him, maybe he's consciously yeah. knowing it. Oh, sorry, please. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, he's the one that... He he created the the calculation for net positivity, where you could actually, as an organization, create a handprint yes, that yes. is bigger than your footprint. Yes. Yeah. So he, speaking of visualizing, speaking of loving complexity and finding ways to simplify it without losing the high fidelity of that complexity, he's someone who helped me get over the initial learning curve of, you know, like you stand at the edge of the pool, you're like, oh my God, it's going to be cold. Do I jump in there? Oh God, it's going to be freezing. Do I jump in there? You hesitate, right? Um, you got to talk yourself into it. And a good friend gives you a push. <laughs> he, he really, he was so important in getting me and now my team in, in the water. Um, and, you know, I've learned through this process that there's a lot of art to the science of, you know, um, quantifying impacts. You know, we're working with limited data sets right. and everybody's, right. everybody's cutting the numbers in different ways. And you can cook your books the same way you can cook any book. So it's... Yep. This, there's figure and figure fly. Yeah. That's what they say. And so it, it's, you gotta, you know... Well, let's go back to, so there's, I, I, I'm interested in, in hearing what you think about, you know, when we talk about you shipping your product, obviously there's a carbon footprint there that you can't really do anything about, but, but uh, we've talked to some people who are proponents of carbon offsets, mm -hmm. purchasing carbon offsets, which, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on that because you can, you can purchase carbon offsets from legitimate projects mm -hmm. that you want fund and then you can let people know hey the carbon offsets we're buying are funding these projects so yeah i think it's like anything else i think you, that it deserves good research to make sure that you're investing in ones that are are legit i found that to be not totally straightforward figuring that out mm. um but i do think it's a blended approach i mean i think that needs to be one of a hundred things we've done. i think that, that you know it's what's appealing about it is that it's simple and i think that it makes it transactional, which is easy for businesses to understand and to greenlight. Um, yeah, there's a calculation there. That yeah, is easy. and it all it it enables you to have the narrative, you know, carbon neutral, or it enables you to get in, right? Get in on you know being part of the solution and not the problem. But it's not. It is a. It is the an entry point. It's like the. It's the lowest bar. Everyone should do it. But it's it's not the it's the well, first thing you do, not the last thing you do. And there's a lot more 
to the property. It could be the last thing you do. It could be. If if you removed all the carbon from your operations yeah, and you course. can't cut into it any further and you want to continue. So I think every organization can can look at it a little bit differently, right? Yes. But uh, what about, um, so I don't remember if it was David Stover or Jane that said uh, waste is a design flaw. And you talked, that was David. David, and you've talked a lot about your how you've designed your product to flat pack and all that. And you briefly mentioned end of life, I think, or supply chain. Chain. What about how does that play into end of life for your products, and how are you capturing that last stage of the supply chain? We're not doing a good job of that. Um, because we don't, we lose visibility on what happens to these things. Very often, we don't even know who's buying them or who's specifying them. Mm. So we have a visibility sort of transparency issue, as I imagine that a lot of people do. I also think that, you know, waste is really a matter of perspective because someone else can be producing waste, but I, but I could turn that into gold somehow or, or someone else can turn that into gold. So I think it's, it's, a, matter of, it's a matter of semantics. Um, but it's also, you know, I think that just using as much organic material as you can helps that condition more than hurts it because it's something that is naturally biodegradable. You know, even the clocks that we're making are made out of paper, not entirely. But they're, the material palette I know is, is, is hopefully going to get revolutionized in our lifetime with mycelia and all kinds of amazing sort of biogenic stuff. Um, and I think that that's part of the direction we need to to go in for sure. Yeah. And I think just designing your products so beautifully and well-crafted that they last a long, long time is, is one solution. Absolutely. I mean, the circular needs to, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say your product, your product looks so simple um, and simple design is so deceiving, right? Yes. Because a lot of, it takes a lot of work and talent to make something look simple. Yeah. These things, when we first started, stick bull we're like oh god someone's just gonna rip us off and copy us and like it's gonna be over like you know there was just this sense that like wow we just spent all this time and like we're so screwed you know um <laughs> but we and i'm not saying that there haven't been sort of copycats and stuff but what we what we do is so hard to do it turns out that it's not easy to make well and it's not easy to make for less i mean it's, it's the i guess there's a level, sometimes complexity in how things go together actually insulates you. Yeah. And I know we have to let Russell go because we are running up on the hour, but I, I wanted to give Russell an opportunity to talk a little bit about um, social equity, because I think that one of the things that Verda and I have enjoyed uh, uncovering in many of our conversations is that uh, environmental activism is very closely tied to social equity and and bad sustainable uh, bad sustainability decisions inevitably uh, hit the impoverished and the disadvantaged first and the hardest. And I, I'm just curious what uh, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think it's all part of. Empathy. I think if you're turned on to, you know, if, if you get into it through the environmental door or you get into it through the, the social equity door, you get into, if you get into best practice, no matter how you get into it, you probably got into it because you are empathetic and you're looking to connect and improve and listen. 
Um, and so once you're in the door, I think the, the silos that separate those things melts away and you just see a world that needs help, people that need help, things that can be better. Um, and you know, the, the idea that commerce and capitalism isn't a simulation of reality that operates outside the, you know, the world of empathy and ethics, but in fact is, or needs to become infused with it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that should be a regenerative healing, multiplying force. Have we reached a point where, you know, where corporate North stars are, are no longer profitability and there's now other things that companies can be successful in, in reaching? Yeah. I mean, maybe we, we need to strive for more of a purpose built somewhere between, um, you know, profit and nonprofit. It's moderation. I don't know. I know that our comp, I know that the world isn't built on the premise of moderation or at least, mm. um, the American version of it isn't. Nope. But I feel like profitability, that's not your, that's not your motivation. It's all about consumption. Or, or is it? Consumption. <laughs> I mean, ha happiness is my motivator. And for me, happiness is checking a lot of boxes. Right. Some of those boxes yeah. are, are com have competing interests with other boxes. You know, I, yeah. I, 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 I want to make a lot of money for my, myself and my family so we can live a comfortable, amazing, wonderful life and, and support other people that we believe in, you know, what they're doing. And, but at the same time, I don't want to violate my code of ethics to do that. You know, you got to find your special path. You know, through all the weeds. That's that's the design challenge, basically. And that's the wellness revolution that you mentioned earlier. I think so. It's factoring in empathy and ethics into the equation, and that fundamentally changes the tra trajectory and decisions that you make or should. And you can't have that fear of hypocrisy. You said it. You're going to check boxes, and some boxes compete with other boxes, and you have to, you have to accept that thing. and know that yeah. that's going to happen. There is this myth of the perfect narrative. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like might have to edit that out to keep our family rating. Sorry, but, yeah. but it's it's so <laughs> so um, unfair. It's sort of like. You know, the, it's like before Instagram, there was this sort of professional version of it where your resume was this like perfect snapshot of your trajectory and your intent and every decision you ever made lined up perfectly. And it all had, it was like preordained genius stuff. It's not, it's like life is so freaking confusing and complicated. We need to make in the same way, vulnerability needs to become rewarded. People need to be willing to be wrong publicly and it's got, we have to forgive and learn, um, in the open, not behind closed doors. It's not, it's just, and I say that to myself too, because here I am just saying, I wasn't willing to talk out loud until I felt like I knew what I was doing. I'm, it, this is a self critique. Like I, I think I would have been better served, you know, being more vulnerable about not understand. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I know more, a lot more than I did, you know, a few years ago. So I don't know. Maybe I think what you guys hey, well, are doing is so valuable because you should be finding confused, vulnerable people that are on the path. They haven't arrived anywhere yet because I don't even know where we're going, but they're on the path. <laughs> well, you know, we, we decided to do this podcast and we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. So there's a certain creative naivety there that uh, 
that helps. Uh, I've got so many great quotes and phrasing phrases, and we'll make sure to credit yeah. all of these. And I, I want to go back and just Good stuff. read up on all the stuff. Buckminster Fuller, all this stuff is amazing. Precious plastic, I want to look up. Yeah, precious plastic. Totally. Yep. Check it out. Yeah. Yep. So much great stuff. Cool. And modularity is sexy. So much great stuff. <laughs> Yes, really enjoyed this, Russell. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much again for for looping me in. I really appreciate it. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it playing.